Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast, brought to you by Discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and today we've got Matt Markins. He's the president and CEO of Awana, and he discusses how a child's worldview is actually developed at a young age and how parents can be present during this process. This teaching encourages a healthy mix of parents and church leaders discipling children together, and he gives us practical tips for helping to raise up children who faithfully follow Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've got kids, I know that that last part is something that's on your mind and in your prayers constantly. This is going to be a great episode for you. So without further ado, let's jump in and hear from Matt Markins from Awana. Here we go. All right, it's good to be with you guys. Um, uh, I want to uh, kind of articulate really clearly what this particular workshop uh, is going to be about. Um, we want to talk about family discipleship and very specifically what I think is the stalemate between church and home and why family discipleship is not happening and how do we break that stalemate. But let's kind of let's get explicit on what we're going to do here. So... Uh, You've seen these uh, Disney or, or, or big productions, like maybe DreamWorks, where you see a sketch of something, and then you see the final product. You guys know what I'm talking about here, like this image. Next image. You know, so this workshop is a sketch of something that will be a finished product in 11 months and two weeks. Like, so this is what we're releasing. We, have, we do a thing every year called the Child Discipleship Forum, which happened two weeks ago. So in 50 weeks, we're doing it again. So uh, if you're a one on the Enneagram and you like everything nice, neat, and tidy, you might want to stand up right now and leave the room. You will not offend me because this is not, I'm serious, this is not nice and neat and tidy. I am opening the curtain. I'm saying this is what our organization is literally sitting around the table discussing right now. There's a lot of research. Kind of like you, you, uh, they, they used to, in movies, they would cut the film and there would be tape left on the, cutting, on the cutting room floor. It's the same kind of thing. There's a lot of stuff here that will not be in the final product of our, our, of our book and of our, our keynote next year because there's, just, there's too much here and not all of it's going to make it in. But you're seeing this very much in process. Are we clear? Okay. So unlike my workshop this morning, if you were here, which is a little more polished, this is not polished. It's actually very rough. Uh, so let's hit the next couple of slides. <clears throat> so we're going to be presenting uh, some data in the first kind of 50% of this straight from the Barna work and what, with the goal of unpacking about kind of five primary points to frame up what I believe is the problem and pointing us in the right direction. So, but I need you to hang with me because it's gonna, I'm, I'm asking you basically, because this is rough, to follow me from here then we're going to wander over here, and then we're going to go up here, and then we're going to go over there. So I'm just saying it's going to be a little, little messy because we're at the very beginning of a new cycle of building kind of the next big piece. So uh, next slide. Uh, yeah, this just if you are not familiar with this, uh, stop by the booth. You can pick it up. This is the largest children's ministry project conducted by uh, the Barna Group. Uh, I encourage you to go check it out. A couple more things. We just launched a new website called childdiscipleship.com. Um, it's a centralization of resources on how's the world forming children, how can we form children to be disciples. And if you scroll down, uh, you'll see a list of talks uh, that we just uh, conducted at our, our Child Discipleship Forum last week. So a lot of the stuff I talk about, if you'll notice that small picture, I think I'm like the second person there. That, that talk that I gave last night in, in full length is free on our website. It's a 45-minute talk. You can get the whole thing. Uh, just click on there. I think we're 
think Sarah from the marketing group back there is asking for your email address. If you'll just give her email address, she'll give you that video right there. So, uh, so those are some free resources that we have. Um, but before we get into the rest of our time together, I want to start by just quickly telling uh, my story, uh, which really hopefully gets to the motivation of why I'm here, why I'm with you today, why I do get out of bed and do what I do every day. And I want to start by talking about my earliest memory. So my earliest memory, uh, Tanner, is not the day I met you. Uh, my earliest memory is uh, uh, the day my dad left the house. So I'm probably about this big, about this tall. Uh, in my mind's eye, I'm sitting on the floor of my bedroom. My door, bedroom door is open. My parents, the master bedroom was just to the right. And so he's carrying cardboard boxes out this direction, the door. And a little while later, he's carrying coat hangers out the door, and he's screaming and yelling. And in, in this tumultuous uh, memory, my brother is just to my left. He's five years older than me, so his, I see a dark-haired presence right here. And he's, I don't know if you remember the Disney Golden Books with the Golden Spine. He's sticking those in front of my face. What's he doing? He's distracting me from the emotional volatility of, this, of the situation. So that, imagine like, you know, in, a, in, ch in childhood, you have these early moments that create your foundation of reality, and that's like one of those first big, big moments. Uh, fast forward <clears throat> to probably months, I would guess, from that time period, um, and my mom found her way, guess where? She found her, play, her way to a church. Good job. Found her way to a church. And so in, in my mind's eye, I'm in a church. It must be an evening because I see a bank of windows off to my left, and it's pink outside. So that tells me the sun is setting. So it's probably a Sunday night or a midweek activity. And there's four people in the room, a man with a guitar right in front of me. I'm assuming his spouse, his wife over to the, his left, another child, and me. Even those little, remember those cardboard bricks? We used to stack them in, in preschool ministry from like the 80s or 70s. So <clears throat> those are in the room. That's pretty much what I remember. And I remember him teaching me songs about Jesus, and I remember being zeroed in, and I had something inside of me that was a powerful force that I can still conjure up today, and it said, this. I knew that I wanted that. Because my little experience up to that point was that that, what he was telling me about, was better than all this other stuff. So that was the beginning. I remember taking a step toward Jesus that day. Was that the day I got saved? I don't know. I was so little, I don't remember. But I kind of consider that like the beginning of my faith journey because that's when I was introduced to Jesus. So fast forward in the 80s. I'm in children's ministry in the 80s. And there would be no children's ministry in the 80s if it were not for flannel graph, right? <clears throat> so, you know, we joke about that today. But, dude, I was so zeroed in on that flannel graph. I was like, wait, I knew Jesus was going to go across that water. And I was just waiting for that flannel figure to move across the water. And I was just so enthralled by that. And I remember, you know, and I was not like a great kid. I was, I was, you know, I was yeah, not a great kid. But I was like paying attention. I remember like elbowing kids like, shut up, I'm trying to listen, right? I was zeroed in. And so when you're teaching and you're thinking, I don't know if anyone's getting any of this, don't dismiss what the Holy Spirit's doing in those environments. So fast forward uh, to my youth years. Um, my parents, like I said, my parents were divorced. My dad was going from one marriage to the next. Uh, very unhealthy lifestyle. And my dad had moved to the same school district to my mom because he had this story in his head that if he was in the same school district, he could get the joint custody two weeks here, two weeks there. And so he kind of groomed me for six months, kind of quietly, don't tell your mom about this, 
you know, like he's trying to prepare me for joint custody. Well, and, and in my mind that made sense, I kind of felt bad for my dad because he just couldn't seem to get it together. So this was gonna be my way of tossing him a favor at age 16 to do joint custody. So I tell my mom, I come home and I tell my mom, here's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do joint custody. And she, she calmly and rationally goes to the other room, comes back 30 minutes later, says, here's why I don't think you should do that. She was not, she did not yell at me, she did not manipulate me, she just talked to me about my dad's lifestyle, what I'm gonna to have to deal with if I do that. And I, I felt like she was genuinely right. So I go back to my dad and I tell my dad over the phone, yeah, I'm not gonna, go, I'm not gonna do this. And he, he says to me, I don't wanna see you anymore and he hangs up. So during that time period, um, I'm on the phone with my girlfriend. And this is back when your phone freedom was only as long as your cord. <laughs> so if your phone cord was 10 feet long, you had like half the house that was yours, right? And we had a 3.5 foot phone cord, which meant I didn't have very much phone freedom. And we had one of those walls in the corner of the kitchen where the living room was here. There was only like a three foot wall where I could hide behind to shield myself for my parents to talk on the phone. So I'm on the phone with my girlfriend and my stepdad was a union guy, you know, live by the rules, show up on time, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we had a rule at 15 minutes, you had to hang up the phone. And at 15 minutes and one second, she hears on the other end, Matt, it's time to get off the phone. And I was just like, oh, I was so mad. And I hung up the phone and I ran through the living room and I yelled at him and I went back to my bedroom and I was on all fours and I was crying. And in a matter of seconds, his big truck driver frame was on all fours, hovered over me. I saw a tear coming down his face and he said, Matt, I'm sorry. And so in that season of my life, not only did that happen, which was the first time a fa either one of my father two figures ever showed any level of empathy or apology or forgiveness or whatever, uh, uh, in that same time period, there was a deacon who said, hey Matt, come, come by the house, stop by the house, I wanna, I wanna talk to you. And he was trying to mentor me and he was teaching me from the book of Proverbs. And then uh, there was a youth pastor, he and his wife, Mike and Chris, uh, Mike and Chris, their doors were always open. Like you could literally come by anytime you wanted. I don't know how they live that way. I could never live that way. Um, I love you, but you know, please call me first. Yeah. And so uh, they, then he was such a good Bible teacher and he was engaging. He let me play the guitar. I knew three chords and I led worship. What was he thinking? Like I had no business doing that and I can't even sing. And so, uh, and, and, uh, and then my pastor, his name is Kim Kimball. But Pastor Kimball would, would uh, Pastor Kim would say, "Hey, come to the park, meet me there, bring your Bible," and he would just walk me through some of the books of the Bible. You know, I remember like, I don't understand why Matthew, Luke, and John keep repeating themselves. What's going on here? You know, so he would teach me basic things that I did not know about the Bible. You know, and so um, what's happening here is this really murky. Oh, oh, I, I left out my parents. You know, my parents did the best thing ever by getting us to church. My parents had very few tools in their toolbox in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They had very few tools. They didn't have all the training and equipping, to, and they were blue-collar environment. But they got us to church, and I have memories of seeing them read the Bible, and I knew they loved Jesus. I found out secondhand that my parents were some of the most generous people in the church. They bought my pastor two cars down through the years. I never got those Air Jordans I wanted, but they bought my pastor two cars, right? So, so I, there's this weird... There's this weird, very imperfect church and home coming together to disciple me in the cornfields of Indiana. And I'm very grateful for these, these men and women who stepped into my life. I didn't even talk about the pastor's wife who wrote me cards 
you know, in small Baptist churches, you have these cards in the back of the pews where you can write someone a little card and encourage them. And she, get, she would give me these cards where I thought my name was divorce, child support, and custody. She gave me the new name of mercy, encouragement, and leadership. What did she do? She lifted my eyes out of the cornfields to see a different future for myself, right? So there's this really kind of mysterious church and home working together to disciple me. And I know I wasn't alone in that. There were other young men and women from that church who, who were being discipled and who were being shepherded. So I want to I talk about uh, this whole idea of the church and the home working together uh, to disciple kids. So we're going to take some time. Again, this is very messy. There's like kind of five major points I want to walk through through some of the research. There's way more in here than we could possibly get to. I just pulled out of the slide deck that Barna gave us. And, and also, I want to say, these screens are so small and you're so far away, you're not going to be able to see things. So just let me describe things to the best of my ability, okay? It's like hieroglyphics in today's world. So I'm actually going to move toward the screen and do my best uh, to kind of unpack this, all right? Wow. Okay, next slide. So let's talk about, there's a looming discipleship deadline, right? We talked a little bit about this idea yesterday uh, that, that by the age of 13, worldview is largely set in 90 plus percent of people. Um, that's probably not all that surprising when you think about human development and formation, the, our major assumptions about reality and how the world works. I just don't think we're, all, we're always thinking of that top of mind awareness. So next slide. So. What I want you to see here are the blue chart, the blue bars and the green bars. The blue bars are uh, children's ministry leaders, and the green bars are congregants and parents, right? And what this is talking about is across the course of your life, have you been discipled at any of the following ages? So what I want you to see here is look at the green bars first, and notice that most people are being discipled who are not children's ministry leaders, so the average person in your church is being discipled primarily between the ages of 7 and 17. By the time you get past the age of 21, the, ma the majority of them being discipled, the, most people aren't being discipled beyond that. So if people are being discipled at all, it's probably between the ages of 7 and 27, somewhere in there. When you get outside of that, most people are, just don't have anyone who's actively discipling them or, 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 or at one point did disciple them. Now, for children's ministry leaders, it's higher. You'll see. We'll go back one. It's a little higher because, you know, these are people who've probably been invested in more, which is why you're probably in ministry. So for, for children's ministry leaders, it's probably between the ages of 7 and 45. That's when most of us have had some level of discipleship happening. Next slide. So children's ministry leaders... Uh, um, the, the, the quote, I am concerned that children will leave their Christian faith when they become adults. Basically, close to 90% of us have some level of concern that children, once becomes uh, adults, they're going to leave the faith. So what do we know? We know that worldview is largely established by the age of 13. We know that most people who are being discipled, it's going to happen between the ages of 7 and 27. And we know that we're, we all have concerns. So this idea that there's this deadline, there's this looming deadline that faith formation typically happens best in this time frame, and it's it's true. It's it, that's that's when it, that's when humans are developed their assumptions, but it's also a window of opportunity when most people tend to be discipled. Next, okay, stopping the stalemate. So in 2003, George Barna 
the founder of the Barna Group. He no longer is with the Barna Group, for those of you who don't know. The man who runs the Barna Group now is named David Kinneman. But George Barna, the original founder of the research group, published a book in 2003, Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions. Uh, some of you who were doing children's ministry then probably read that. You may have that on your bookshelf. But in 2003, when that came out, he said in that book, parents are the primary disciples and influencers of faith on their own children. Now, I was involved in children's ministry back then. It was a moment. It was like an epic it's like you two coming to your hometown and everybody gets free tickets. Like it was amazing. Like it was, it was pull your sword out, charge the hill. Finally, the data gets and understands what I deal with in my church, right? So what happened as a children's community, children's ministry community at large, is we parroted that statement. We said parents are the primary disciples of the kids. But what has happened is the needle hasn't necessarily moved and parents actually discipling the kids. So we, we have a bit of a stalemate, and we need to talk, and I think, I, think we can, I think we can talk through, at least this workshop is me pulling back the curtain on our sketch, our first rough draft of how we think we need to break the stalemate. So I'm not even saying everything we're presenting here later is actually right and accurate. We're working our way through this, so you're seeing a very rough draft. Okay, next slide. So children's ministry leaders and parents don't always agree on the domain of faith formation. Key words there, domain, faith formation. So where, where's the home of faith formation? So next slide. So what you'll see here in the blue, it's where should, where should the primary source of ch children's discipleship take place? In the blue, it's saying at home over here on the left. These are children's ministry leaders who are saying it belongs at home. Home is where it should happen. Only 5% say it's at church. What we are saying as a children's ministry community isn't a yes, it's a heck yes. It is a yes. Faith should be happening, faith formation should be happening at home. It's an emphatic, 95% is, is overwhelming, right? Now, when we ask the parents and congregants, the green and the yellow are parents and then congregants. Congregants would mean all people, even people who don't have children. And the other one is uh, just parents. Parents and congregants are kind of split. So if you imagine them having coffee, what are the parents and congregants saying as they're having coffee? They're, some of them are saying, well, I think the church is primarily responsible. And the others are saying, well, I think, I think we as the home are primarily. So parents are kind of, and congregants are kind of split on this. But the church is in no way, it's emphatically parents are responsible. And I want to I talk through why I think that is both true and right and accurate, as well as very incomplete, uh, because some things are not happening. So it is theologically true that parents, I'm responsible to disciple my own two sons. That's, that's factual. We can get that right out of the pages of Scripture. But there's more to it than that, and I want to talk about that. And I think that's about how we break the stalemate. Next slide. Okay, again, I said this was rough. This is really rough. I took this picture two days ago with my iPhone, straight out of some of our research that's unpublished uh, with another organization. Here's what this is saying. The gap between what children's ministry leaders are doing and what they would like to be doing to have an impact on children is very telling. So in this column right here, which you cannot see, it's measuring how important do you say that training and equipping, equipping parents, and then the next one down is equipping volunteers and prayer. How important do you think equipping parents is? It's like 40%. How important equipping volunteers? I think it's like 33%. And how important prayer is, it's around 50%. So like, these are like, a big block of people saying this is a high importance. 
And then the, the next column over says, okay, how much time are you spending doing that? And for, uh, yeah, good job taking that picture back there. For, for equipping parents, it's like 5% of our time. Equipping volunteers, 5% of our time. So let's think about that. Like, like if parents are the primary disciplers of their kids, and we've been parroting now for 19 years what George Barna said, but we're only spending 5% of our time doing that. The purpose of this study, by the way, was how do children's ministry leaders spend their time? And we did this study because we had a hunch that we've, we've been saying equip, parents are the primary disciples, but we're actually not necessarily, our church model isn't built to equip the parents to do that, right? So how do we break the stalemate? I think you guys can probably see where this is headed. All right, next slide. Let's talk about uh, what to talk about with kids. This is overwhelming. I'm going to fly through this. Next slide. So this, there's two things happening here. In the blue, it's saying, I'm very comfortable leading children with, with an appropriate age conversations about, and it's the topics listed at the bottom. What the yellow is, children's ministry leader help, children's ministries help, helpers feel uncomfortable addressing these topics. So what are you seeing here? I feel very comfortable leading children with these topics, a relationship with Jesus, sin and forgiveness, uh, practically living out the faith. So these are theological, gospel, discipleship, Bible type things. Now over here to the right, we start getting into vocation and calling, responsible for global mission, forming a biblical worldview, compassion and justice, the historical context of scripture. These are more nuanced, you know, detailed, specialized topics that are not necessarily straight out of theological doctrines or whatever. So you can see that we get less comfortable, but, um, and, and that we feel more uncomfortable the farther to the right we get. Okay, next slide. Children's ministry leaders on social topics. Again, kind of same thing. I'm very comfortable with leading children on age-appropriate uh, conversation. So you see like the very comfortable as you move from the left to the right gets uh, less. And then the yellow says children's ministry helpers feel uncomfortable and then with more we get these topics, the more uncomfortable they get. So on the left, it's how to navigate culture. But what I want you to see, so the one on the very far left is how to navigate culture while staying true to their faith. But I want you to see here is cognitive dissonance. So we're saying, I'm very comfortable with how to help children navigate the, the culture with their faith. But every one of the next items is a cultural item on how to help kids navigate their faith. So we, we think, oh, I'm kind of comfortable with that. Well, okay, so how are you doing with social media use? Understanding other cultures, social justice, human sexuality, and pornography, it's, it sort of goes really, we get a lot more uncomfortable. So we think on a high level, yeah, I think I'm, I'm okay at that, but when we really get down to certain topics, we're less comfortable. Again, that's just, it's like a health check, like help me understand where I'm really at, right? Next. Yes, yeah. Do you believe children's ministries should address uh, current events. So, so basically parents, congregants, all church adults, uh, we all have a, a, a pretty good, it's like 75% basically think we need to be addressing these issues. So it's an overwhelming yes, but one out of four is still a good number that, think, that are uncomfortable with that. Next. Parents welcome the church's partnership in walking with kids as they face some of these tough topics. All right, let's flesh that out. Next. Okay, again, the blue is children's ministry leaders. They say their children's ministry has addressed this. The yellow 
uh, parents of five to 14 year olds believe children's ministry should address this. So what we want you to notice is there's a point at which the yellow actually rises above the blue. So the children's ministry starts not meeting that expectation, which the parents have a higher expectation of. So issues on the left, we've got like bulliness and loneliness, social media, we get into depression, suicide, gender identity, sexual identity, school shootings, so on and so forth. So again, the farther we go over to the right, the expectations are dropping, but, but we do see the parents are like 5% or 10% have a little bit of a higher expectation than even the church that we need help with these issues. Parents are needing help with how to navigate some of these things. It says, realistically, who has the greatest influence on a child's spiritual development? No surprise, it's parents and the church, parents and church leaders. Now, now the key word here is spiritual. It's the child's spiritual development. So we agree that parents and church are very influential when it comes to child's spiritual development. But notice the next slide. The next slide is asking about the child's total development, child's holistic development. How influential do you feel each of the following are on a child's development? Notice here, church, so in the blue, this is church leaders, this is you guys, kids pastors. We feel like the church, church leaders, and church services for children are really low. We, we have very little confidence that we're having an impact on a child's overall development. Why would that be? We talked about this yesterday in the first workshop, cultural formation. Cultural formation of humanism, naturalism, secularism, post-Christian culture, all these things, even cultural Christianity is such a powerful force that we look in our toolbox at church and go, how can this really influence how they're being developed by all this? So we feel like we lack that overall confidence. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. So let's talk about reinforcements for resilience. So, so resilience, when you look at the eight-year-old in your, in your ministry, when you think about them when they're 25, 30, 45, 50, what is your hope and your heartbeat for them? It's that they would remain faithful to Jesus and growing as a Christ follower no matter their context, right? Well, if they're living in the Middle East, if they're living in post-Christian Portland, Portland, I started to say Portland, Tennessee, I live next to Portland, Tennessee, Portland, Oregon, or wherever, like you would hope that they would remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. So let's talk about that. So we talked about this yesterday. Just one loving, caring adult makes all the difference. There's tons of data from the United Nations, from Harvard, from other Christian studies, but let's look at what this one discovered. All right, this is saying basically 40%, 39% of the children in our churches in the United States have at least one loving, caring adult at the church 
in addition to the parent at the church that that child's connecting with, has a good relationship with, right? So that's the good news, 40% do, 60% do not. Now, what the power behind this is in the next four slides. Again, there's too much data for you to even absorb, but what I want you to notice is the difference between the, the long bars and the short bars. Next slide. You know, the green are the kids who have one loving, caring adult at church in addition to their parent. And the blue is th are those children who do not. So parents of five to 14 year old, thinking about your child's experience at church, how true is the, fo uh, the following about them? They integrate the biblical principles in their life, understands the Bible, memorizes Bible verses. Again, there's no comparison. Next slide. Thinking about your children's interaction at church and children's ministry, how much would you agree or disagree about the following? My child has friends at church, church matters, children's ministry is the highlight of their week. Next slide. I, I, this is, again, this is too much to go over. The point is, when, there, when, when there's a church community that has loving, caring adults who see kids, who know kids, they know their name, they know what's going on in their life, they know that this child had a basketball tournament last week and they want to know how that went, they know that this child has a reading comprehension problem, they're trying to encourage them and help them, they understand that their parents are divorced, this child may have food issues, they're, you know what I mean? Like kids are known, understood, and they feel like this is a place that I belong. Think about the power in that when that child is 17 or 25 or 35 and the you know what hits the fan and life gets hard and they're gonna say, where did I feel love? Where did I feel like this is the place where I go to get love? It was this church. We're so concerned about truth and doctrine, which we should be, it's foundational. But inside of a human is the sense of where do I belong? And when they remember I belong there and they go back to you because you cared about me even when I wasn't doing great. And it's through that that I have a heart connection that I experience Jesus and I, and I go back to the scriptures because I know that this is the source of truth, right? So it's, it's through a person. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. He did not say go and pass out the Old Testament scrolls and do Bible literature distribution. Now the Bible's important. The Bible's the source. It's the foundation of God's revelation to humanity but it's typically through a relationship that we actually uh, see that come alive because someone's mentoring us, teaching us, and coaching us. So kids need a person that, in, a, in a community of people to help them feel belong. And if it's just one in addition to that parent, look at the difference, right? Okay, next slide. When kids are, health, when kids are in a healthy intergenerational Christian community, they externalize their faith and they move toward generous countercultural behavior. Next slide. This is just continuing to validate that. Next slide. Strong networks of old and young Christians don't just happen by accident. Next slide. Understanding and facilitating intergenerational relationships can be a worthwhile investment in the future of the church. Next. All right. This concludes our data portion of the, pre of the very messy, very sketchy, not sketchy, sketched version of our... Uh, this whole thing is sketchy. All right. So again, this is available at the booth for $20. You can get all of that. Matter of fact, we're doing a free giveaway to somebody. So there you go. All right. So I want to move toward my podium. I want to move toward um, kind of the next steps here. Okay, so if I could summarize, that's what we're going to do. We're going to summarize everything we've just said into five points. Let's go to the next slide. The first one is this. In most people, discipleship takes place early in life if it happens at all. Christian discipleship. Discipleship is happening. The world is discipling us to be like the world, right? But Christian discipleship 
happens in most people at a younger age, if it happens at all. Second, the second thing I think we're saying here is this. There's a dispute between church leaders and parents on the domain of faith formation. The third thing I think we're saying is, yet very few children's ministry leaders are actually equipping parents or volunteers. If there's anything you walk away from this workshop with, it's that right there. We have parroted for 19 years since George Barnes' book, Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions. We have parroted the soundbite. Parents are the primary disciples of the kids. Pastors have said it. Kids pastors have said it. Family ministry pastors have said it. But the data shows that most churches are not doing equipping. Church leaders and parents alike agree that we need to discuss cultural formation. You know, we probably spend... You've heard this term deconstruction. We've probably spent, on point number four, we've spent too little time deconstructing how the dominant culture is forming us. And we're trying to figure out how to fit Jesus into that massive cultural formation experience that kids are living every day. So let me give you a resource right here for number four. If you have not listened to the podcast series called This Cultural Moment by John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers, it is the most pared down, simplified version of go, getting your PhD, getting a master class in how the culture is forming you, your kids, your grandkids, and the people in your church, everyone. So listen to that podcast series. Start with season one. I think it's what is secularism. It might even be what is post-Christian culture. There's only four seasons. There's only about 40 episodes total, and they're each about 12 to 20 minutes. So you could plow through it in a month, maybe three if you took your time. If you go and listen to that podcast series, I promise you, I promise, who just laughed? Did you laugh? I promise you, you will, it, will, it will change your life in a good way. You will start seeing things. It's like when you buy a, uh, it's like when you buy a Ford F-150. Everyone has a Ford F-150. You see them everywhere, right? Like uh, you, you just will start seeing things that you've never seen before. So I know some of you have listened to it because I see nodding heads. And, and by the way, what I did, I listened to it twice, and the second time I went through it, every time they mentioned an author or a book or a resource, I wrote it down. I have like this long list. Uh, so it's a, such a service to all of us. They've done all the hard work for us to read thousands of books that you and I will never have time to read, and they put it all in one location. So they've really helped our whole organization. This cultural moment, and the two primary personalities are John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers. All right, number five. In addition to a parent, one loving, caring adult at a church can have a significant impact on the spiritual development of a child. So I think everything we're saying up to this point could be summarized into these five points. Now, everything from this point forward is debate. I'm about to put something forward that I may not even agree with in five months. So this, this, is, this is where it's going to get a little sketchy, right? So I'm putting a hypothesis out here that our team is still working through. So this is not finished. I'm telling you, even for the audio recording and record for my own integrity, we are wrestling through this. But this is like a, a proof of concept, right? Like a, uh, we have a phrase we use in our organization called the idea to beat. We're going to put an idea on this. This is the idea. If no one can come up with a better idea after we've wrestled through this, then this may be the best idea. So what I'm about to show you is the idea to beat. So, hey, help me beat it. Let's, let's make this better. So my premise is that it's theologically true and accurate, straight out of Deuteronomy 6, that parents are the primary desire. That is a true, factual, theological statement. But 
If we don't equip the saints, it's malpractice. If we don't equip the saints, we are guilty of malpractice. So, so far I'm doing good. So, my, the overall umbrella rough draft statement right now, now is what does the church have to do to break the stalemate? We've got to move toward equipping. You just said it earlier. In our current engine, in our current calendar of children's ministry, there's no capacity or very little capacity. It's only happening in 5% of the time. But my premise is, if we don't figure out how to change that, we're going to be guilty of malpractice. So, Here's what I'm suggesting. You, you've all, you know, you guys learned this in high school, right? With, let's put the, let's empty the, the glass jar out. Let's put it back on the table. You've got the big rocks, the medium rocks, the small rocks, and the sand. If we're putting our big rocks in, if we could just, let's, by the way, let's not, I'm not saying burn children's ministry down. I'm saying continue to maintain what you're doing while you set aside time to talk about how should we do it differently in the future. I'm not saying stop doing what you're doing. I'm saying go through a process that maybe 12 or 18 months from now, you might be doing some things differently. So I'm talking about process, not immediate decisions, right? Could be 24, 36 months even. What I'm saying is if you could, on a whiteboard, empty out the jar, what would be the big rocks you would put in first? And I'm saying if we don't figure out how to put equipping and how to move that 5% to maybe 10%, 15%, I don't know. I, I, you're going to have to decide how much you got to move that. But if we don't move toward equipping and using our capacity to equip, we will be guilty of malpractice. So, therefore, <clears throat> the first thing I'm suggesting in this rough draft is our lead pastors and our primary people of influence in the church have to cast vision and cultivate culture. Cast vision and cultivate culture. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? Cast a vision where children and the value of forming disciples prior to the age of 13 is a high value in our church. Our pastors need to come to the realization that even though the majority of his or her energy is on ministering to adults, our pastor still has to be absorbed that most people's worldviews form prior to the age of 13. Our pastor has to understand that, and it has to be a part of our pastor's vision that kids matter, that reaching, discipling, and, and, and helping kids relationally belong is a high value at our church. Our pastor needs to get down on one knee and fist bump and high five kids and talk to them. Like he, he needs to personally embody that, but he needs to make sure the staff is embodying that. He needs to make sure the, the, the chief volunteers and the deacons and elders are embodying that. It has to be a part of who we are. And whether it's four times a year or 12 times a year or whatever, he's got to work into his sermons, talking points, that make this a part of our vernacular where kids are seen, known, belong, and matter, and we've got to be reaching and discipling kids, right? So it's got to be part of the culture, which means it's got to be part of the language and our vision casting. So I could keep talking about this, but I think you guys are tracking with me. Number two. All right, this is one where there was some disagreement in the, I just did this workshop yesterday. There was a little bit of disagreement over this one, so we'll see if, if this works. Um, get them while you got them. And I'm going to modify this because I learned something from the last workshop. I think it's either get them while you got them or something else. I don't know how to phrase the next part, but let's flesh it out. What do I mean by get them while you got them? If we could put a map of your church up on the screen, like, like, uh, like the aerial view, the footprint of your church. And if we could do a heat map of where people are on Sunday, I'm guessing at large the two highest areas of concentration of where people are are going to be in the primary sanctuary area and in the children's ministry. 
right? Am I, I'm seeing some nodding heads. So my question is, I know that churches are different. They're small churches, really small churches, house churches, big churches, mega churches. My, my, my question is, is there another space somewhere in that facility that can host 20, 25 people if you're a smaller or medium-sized church? If you're larger, maybe 50 to 100 or more. Is there another room somewhere that's currently sitting empty while the primary things are going on? If that's true, I'm asking, can senior pastors understand how critical equipping is, equipping parents, that twice a year or four times a year, we have a three-week or four-week training experience while they're already there where we equip the parents. So as a pastor, I'm no three times a year, I'm gonna have a little micro campaign where I'm pushing parents, hey, in February, if you're a parent, I need you to sign up. I'm asking you to actually not come in and listen to the teaching and preaching and go to this equipping so that you can disciple and change the legacy of your family. Right, but see, you're tracking with me? So if you got this little fellowship hall that's sitting empty on a Sunday morning and it can host 50 people, how about twice a year or four times a year, we do a training for parents on how to equip parents because training is multi-sensory. Training, you're, you're not just disseminating information. You build a training that in a 60-minute session has about 20, 25 minutes of content, but about 20, 25 minutes of talking and, and role-playing. I'm role-playing with you on, hey, we're gonna have a conversation. I'm gonna teach you how to have a conversation with your child. I'm gonna teach you how to ask your child for forgiveness because you hurt their feelings or you screamed at them and you lost your temper. Like Amen. things that parents, come on. <laughs> things that parents, things that parents need to, that's, that's modeling, that's role play, that's equipping, which is multi-sensory, right? So that's different from listening to, to one-way communication for a pastor. So how do we help our pastors see that training and equipping is multi-sensory will actually lead to greater implementation and transformation, right? So I'm, I'm proposing that we figure out how to get them while we got them two times, three times, four times a year in a parent discipleship equipping seminar. Or training, not seminar, training experience. Third part is primary factors. So in the book Resilience, in chapter 10, we get to what we believe are the three primary factors that lead to lasting faith in kids. Now, here's what we did not do. We did not sit around the table and say, what would be the best marketing campaign that we think we could come up with three really slick words to get people to buy our stuff? That's not at all what this is. In 2013, I was tasked by the guy who onboarded me into the Awana ministry, and he said to me, Matt, this is a 60-some-year-old ministry. You've got to do research to answer the question, what is it that we've been doing all these, for the things that have worked, not everything worked, but for things that have worked, why have they worked? You don't be around 60 years at that point in time because of complete and utter failure. Some things have worked. So we started asking, well, what are the factors that lead to lasting faith in kids? So at this point, I've said this so many times, at this point, we've done nine research projects of which this was the seventh. And they, they helped form the three primary areas, belong, believe, become. Belong is highly relational, believe is deeply scriptural, and become is truly experiential. So if I were, if I were a kid's pastor, again, going back to that uh, slide from yesterday, which had all the tax of VBS and large groups, small groups, just the overwhelming program that we live in, I would set all that aside. Again, not, I, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying set aside the space to put the primary factors that you guys, you come to your own conclusion, believe that most shape and influence faith in children. And that would be my 
objective blueprint for my children's ministry, not the programs. And then I would then align my programs to those objectives and goals, right? So let's just say you're a large group, small group church, or a community group church, or a Sunday school church. I don't care which one you are, but are those methodologies achieving those objectives? And does your volunteer force understand what those objectives are and how to actually embody that to lead children to Jesus? So primary factors, I would build my ministry around those primary factors that are most known to influence faith. That's going to create great discussion. And some of the things we love, we actually might let go of some of those things and it might be really hard, but we might put more emphasis on some things of greater value that lead to greater fruitfulness with the gospel. So in experiencing, we see three parts. The first part is experiencing the presence of God. Let me talk about exactly what I mean by that. If we were Adam and Eve, and when God spoke to us, we would not have said, hang on a second, God, I got to go pick up the Bible and read about you so I can understand you. God would be like, his presence would be with us. He was speaking to humanity, and our sin broke that, right? So experiencing the presence of God is important, and sitting down and, and praying and worshiping God individually and uh, pledging, our, I should say pledging our allegiance, but it is true, pledging our allegiance to God and our faithfulness and our love for Him, um, that's important. And kids can be taught that. So experiencing God and worshiping and loving Him individually and, and as a group. The second thing is um, experiencing our gifts. Kids have hands and feet and minds and skills and gifts and talent. You were just talking about a teacher who wants to teach a certain way. Well, that's how do I get that person's gifts in the right spots, right? So how, how can I, someone I was talking to probably in here earlier today was just talking about how do we put, even children can help participate in the kind of the operation of the church. Like kids have gifts that they can serve and you, why can't kids help certain times a year with special events like greeting or our church does a youth service twice a year where the students actually do the teaching, the preaching, the and this is a church of 1,200 people. It's not just a small, I mean, this is a church that is shooting for a certain level of excellence and they're willing to say, that doesn't always matter. We need to give these kids opportunity to use their skills and gifts, right? So that's a second way of experiencing. And then a third way is how do we help kids experience and navigate culture, right? I'm eight years old and I'm hearing about transgenderism at school and I need to know like, who do I ask these questions to, you know? Can I, can I ask my parents that? Can I ask my volunteer, Mr. Jim? You know, like, who do I ask those questions? So how do we help kids experience the culture experience their gifts and talents, and experience the presence of God. So in a second, Mike's going to interrupt me, and, I'm, and I'm, we're going to read out those four practical behaviors that a volunteer can help that, can get trained in on how to help that child in, in the area of, of, of become, which is experiential. Okay, a couple, while we're waiting on that, a couple of resources. If you go to childdiscipleship.com and you scroll down, you'll see like some videos maybe halfway down the page or so. And uh, those videos are from an event called the Child Discipleship Forum. We do it every year in Nashville. Uh, we just did it two weeks ago. So you, you can, there's some free ones. You can, you know, in exchange for your email, you can get access. So my talk I did yesterday was a portion of a full talk that is available for free on that website. But if you see certain speakers that you like, you can buy their talks for $7 or you can buy like the whole lot for $99. So, so that's available. A second thing, if you go to that same website, childdiscipleship.com, and you go to the sub-navigation and, um, and then you hover over the sub-navigation, you scroll down under training, 
we were, there's a, a link called the Resilient Child Discipleship Training. So what you're seeing right here, Mike just literally flew through the training. <laughs> so here's, here are the four, sir, for your statement, uh, four practical practices of a uh, becoming resilient child discipleship maker. Resilient child discipleship makers consistently and actively engage kids in conversation. So going back to experiences, if you want to help kids experience God, experience their gifts, and know how to navigate a very tricky culture, a foundational behavior for every adult disciple maker are these four things. Consistently and actively engage kids in conversation. By the way, these are, many of these are so basic, but if we will embody them, and this becomes a part of the culture of our church, I think we're gonna see uh, different, uh, different formation happen in kids. Number two, resilient child discipleship makers or disciple makers share their personal faith story with kids. So again, this is about experiences. Here's, here's an example of why this is important. Let's say kids go through Sunday school or small group for 18 years, but we teach the Bible as an ancient artifact, as history, it can become like this other siloed thing about then and not now. As opposed to, we're teaching Bible, which is factual history, but also, hey, can I tell you how I encountered God this week? My wife and I would tell the story of the time when we were dirt poor, we took a Dave Ramsey course, we were committed to not going in debt, and guess what, our HVAC goes out in the winter. And we were so young and living on love, baby, that we said, we're not getting an HVAC, we got space heaters that traveled with us around the house. And uh, we prayed and prayed and prayed, and guess what, a literal miracle happened, and a man, Bob Bass, you guys know Bob Bass? A man shows up with a space heater, or no, excuse me, an HVAC unit, and he brought over a whole crew that installed the whole thing. That was a big moment in our life. And there's more to the story that I couldn't tell, but it was a miracle. We prayed that morning, the feeding of the 5,000, and we read that. So we believed with every fiber of our being it was going to happen, and it happened. Share your faith story with kids. It's not only a true ancient text that's very important to humanity because it's God's revelation. It's also real today. Okay, number three. Resilient child disciple makers. You guys are tricking me, by the way. You're getting the whole training for free. I'm just kidding. No. Resilient child disciple makers model and invite children to experience God and participate in the ways and practices of Jesus. In other words, model for them. Use the time you have them in small group or Sunday school to model the behavior. Oh, guys, guys, guys. Let me tell you, I've been, I've been learning about this thing called... Uh, how to just sit quietly and pray. We're going to sit for 60 seconds and we're going to, we're going to, this is what I do in my quiet time. And I just, in a, and we sit for like maybe 30 seconds. And then, then you say, then you say a little short prayer. It's like, show them how to pray, right? Show them how to read, show them how, talk to them about, you know, fasting may not be appropriate for kids, but tell them, Hey, here's something that's important to me. I, I fast, you know, let's say it's 12 hours, 18 hours once a year or whatever it is like this is important to me because following you know, whatever those practices are model it for them so they can see it all right number four resilient child disciple makers give kids opportunities to use their gifts to serve others so make it part of your church culture where you you include kids and you invite kids and kids are important to the servicing in the community as appropriately, maybe even little trips as appropriately, as appropriate, and in your church. Okay, we're gonna toggle back over to the home because um, we got like five minutes left. So we're gonna talk about the three things the home can do. Uh, so it may take a minute to get that back up there, but I'm gonna go ahead and start. 
Now, I want to I start by saying, here's what I'm not saying. You're going to see some things here that are infrastructure and not the substance of the The substance of discipleship would be like Bible teaching, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, relational conversations, memorizing the scripture, all these things that you would consider, prayer. What you're not going to see here is the, is the, are those practices. You're actually going to see infrastructure, but give me a minute to unpack why I think this is important. So uh, the home... The home, what I think to, to build this, to, to break the stalemate, the church has to move toward equipping, but the home doesn't have the infrastructure for discipleship to happen. So again, let's, let's put all those discipleship activities like in the salt shaker, and in a little bit, we're going to pour them into the infrastructure. But as the home is currently, the infrastructure is not there for that to happen. Because you're wondering why the take-home sheet never gets used and always finds its way to the bottom of the minivan. It's because the home has the wrong infrastructure. You got to drag it to the other side. Okay, got it. So uh, what's the first one? The first one is for parents is own the schedule or it will own you. Own the schedule or it will own you. So if I were doing a workshop for parents, I would literally print out versions of a schedule and I would have a mock-up of the average American parent schedule. I would have a preloaded mock-up of what that looks like. And what would it include? Tell me, what would it include? Soccer? Piano lessons. Church. Church. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Dance. Birthday parties. Birthday parties. How about travel baseball? Yes. A weekend at the lake? Yeah, all these things. It would be preloaded. Good job, guys. <laughs> Give it up for the team in the back. All right. I would have them absorb, absorb that schedule, all right? Then I would ask them to look down the line when their child's 25 or 35 or 45. I would even go farther than that. I would go to that Revelation 7 scene. I love that idea that John had permission to take his eyes off of Jesus because he, he describes every tongue, tribe, and language. He wouldn't have known that unless he had had the permission to look around the room. Do you see your child? In your imagination, do you see your child around that throne? If you want your child to be there, then what? how are you going to exude your influence to help disciple them to be there, right? So if the schedule stays the same, what's your likelihood of helping influence that. So then give them another, give the, flip the sheet over, have, a, have them do that same big rock, medium rock, small rock activity. What, what does that look like for you? Okay, and let me add to this. I think some of the best discipleship at home is actually organic and not programmed. So what I'm not saying is, please do 60 minutes of Bible reading and Bible just, uh, lecture at home. I'm not saying, if that works for some homes, fantastic. But Deuteronomy 6 says, talk about these things while you sit at home, while you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get... So some of those are maybe a little more lying, lying down and getting up, or those are like maybe a little more formal rituals. But walking along the road is just kind of happenstance, right? So, so have them own the schedule. How do you want to build your life? Is having every child in three sports really going to work? Is Bobby really going to make the NFL? You know, is she really going to be on Broadway? I, I, I don't know. Parents have to wrestle with those things, right? The second thing is talk. Talking is a KPI, which is a business term, as you probably know, for key performance indicator. Talking is a key performance indicator of whether discipleship is happening. If parents are not talking to their kids, that's a KPI that something is not well in the relationship. There's probably not a warmth between that child and that parent if there's not talking happening. So if there's talking happening, like if we were to bust out the walls right now on the drywall, should we do that? No, let's not do that. If we were to bust out the drywall, what would we see? We would see conduit. Like why? We'd see pipes. 
and we would see electrical conduit. What's happening is that conduit becomes, it's sending electricity from here to here. Those plumbing is sending water from here to here. Talking is the, the, it's the conduit from my heart to your heart as a parent and a child. And we should, we should encourage parents to talk to their kids about everything. Talk about dance, talk about ballet, talk about fantasy football, talk about TikTok or whatever the topics are. Talk about everything because if I can talk to mom about everything, I can talk to mom and dad about the most important things, yeah. right? Like the most important things. And so again, we're talking about infrastructure here. And then thirdly, build the circle. Okay, another activity I would have them do is I would have them draw a circle, or I would, I would have this preloaded, a circle drawn, and, I, and it would be like a pie chart that's kind of pre-divided up into percentages. And I would ask them, what percentage of your child's total development can you personally meet the needs of? Is it 10%, 25%, 50%, 75? You know, if it were me, I'd probably say, I don't know. I'm, being, I'm going to be generous to myself and say I could meet 10% of my child's overall developmental needs, even discipleship. If I give it everything I got, I, how much can I really meet? What's the point we're making? Flip that sheet over. Now draw a circle, put your child in the middle, and who are the five people in their life who are going to be the other people to help meet those needs? Oh, his baseball coach is such a mentor and Christ follower. I'm going to make sure that he, uh, we're going to build an intentional team around my son or my daughter. You know, so-and-so, the life group leader, is one of those life group leaders that moves with them every year. You know what I mean? So we're, going to, we're going to, so we're going to build an intentional team. And I, as a parent, am going to be touching base with these five people throughout the year on a regular basis, making sure they're touching base with my child and making intentional connections. Guys, that deacon that invited me over to his house was only a few times but it was so formational in those seasons. That team around your child, building that circle around that student, right? So parents, if parents will own the schedule, will talk and build the infrastructure of talking and build the team. Then the things in our salt shaker, our season of Bible reading, uh, intentional conversations. Mike Handler's about to lead his family through a whole a whole experience on what does it mean to be a part of our family. Like, like all of these things that we're looking for, we're currently trying to fit them into a system that's not built to do any of those things. But if parents will own these things and build these things, all of a sudden, now when we go to equip them, and the, and the church is actually equipping them on what to do, we can equip them how to build a home where faith formation can actually take place. This podcast was brought to you by discipleship.org. If you haven't already, check out discipleship.org and also go to slash collective. And we got tons of resources there for you as you are growing and becoming a disciple maker. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope that it moved you and encouraged you and challenged you in your relationship with either your kids or either someone else's kids that you are discipling through your children's ministry at church. So I hope that it was helpful for you. All right, y'all. See you soon.
Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today.